Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Proverbs. And I'm just going to read a few verses from the book of Proverbs. And um, I've got something a little bit uh, special for you in mind today. Proverbs 24. And we'll start in verse 10. Proverbs 24, verse 10. And this is God's word. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I say, today's going to be a little bit different. Um, what I am uh, all about and, and am committed to is expositional preaching. And if you don't know what that is, you know, if you kind of, some of you are older and you think of the Chuck Swindollian era where you're driving down the road and you listen to Chuck Swindoll and you're really not sure if you're in a Bible passage or not, it's true. But he's not necessarily taking a Bible passage and opening it up for your understanding, saying, hey, this is what God's word means. Uh, it's just a different kind of style of preaching. And in fact, it was a, a generational trend in preaching for a number of years. The generational trend that I'm in and that what I love and what I'm all about and what I think our church is all about is expositional preaching, which simply means this is what God's word says this is what God's word means. This is how it applies to your life right this minute. Okay, so it's taking the passage. It's saying, it's, it's approaching a passage and saying, okay, the meaning of the passage is the message of the sermon. Okay, that's expositional preaching in short. That's what I love. That's what I'm committed to. I want you to be able to point to it and understand why I'm saying what I'm saying it, when I'm saying it and point to the scriptures so you can trace it. And so with expositional preaching, you can preach, excuse me, you can teach without preaching, but you can't preach without teaching. What I mean is, if, uh, if you, this were a Christian history course, I could teach without preaching, couldn't I? Believe me, I've taken Christian history courses. I don't remember anything about them at all, but uh, I've taken them and I can tell you, it ain't preaching, it's teaching. Christian history is dates and numbers and people and names and stuff like that. All right, so that's teaching without preaching. But preaching, expositional preaching, you, can, you, you preach, but there's got to be teaching in it because it's anchored in God's word. All that said, we're changing it a little bit this morning. Doing, I'm on the teaching side today. I'm not on the preaching side. I'm going to sneak it in a little bit. But um, I'm on the teaching side today. And um, I, I didn't read Proverbs uh, 24 verses 10 through 12 to expositionally handle it. I read it to disturb you. Look at it again. Um, basically, it's saying, hey, um, rescue those in verse 11. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. So uh, it's, it's saying, hey, watch out for those people. Rescue those people. And it says, if you say in verse 12, behold, we did not know this. Well, gosh, doesn't, it, doesn't the one who uh, waves the heart perceive it? Oh, yeah, God doesn't really know about this. <laughs> yes, he does. And it goes on to say, uh, does he who not does does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? The answer is yes. But I want your soul to be a little bit scared by that. In fact, I was reading that uh, last week, and I, I read that, and I thought. 
that's a little bit frightening, and uh, it, it moved me to talk to you about what I'm going to talk to you about today. Uh, so, um, at the core of the gospel, good news, there's bad news too. The bad news is that if God really is holy, 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 and if his standards really are up here, well, for somebody who's not holy, holy, holy like us, that's bad news. That's scary news. God does see, God does judge in righteousness, justice, and truth. He observes and he judges. It is true. One of the things I keep in the back of my mind as I teach all the time, I really mean that, as I look out at a room like this, is that sin is embarrassing. Sin is humiliating. It's discouraging. Um, sin unravels lives. Sin ruins relationships. Sin makes us self-destructive. Sin makes us self-preservationists. And so every time I look out at a crowd, I see people who are in some stage of hurt and trauma. Every single seat, there's hurt in every single seat. Every single seat, the sinner is embarrassed. I know that. That's heavy on my heart. And so what we're left with as Christians, uh, what we're left with when we confront this holy God is either a knuckle-dragging grief and shame and regret or an elaborate system of dealing with that grief and shame and regret. Outside of Christ, we either have shame and regret or we have some system of trying to suppress that shame and regret and get on with life. The gospel provides relief. In comes the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a cleansing of the conscience. Our sin debt has been taken off of us and put on another, and our souls are relieved. We're forgiven, men and women. We have access to the throne room of God. And so we joy in our sin debt being forgiven. We joy in our spirits finding relief. We joy in our relationship with God being enabled. We joy in help in this life now established, and we joy in an eternally secured future in Jesus Christ. We enjoy that in the gospel of grace, don't we? Yay! That's the gospel. Then, in come the theologians. And uh, in my view, they sully the gospel and dishearten the sheep with something that sounds like this. It's been... By grace you have been saved. You've been justified in the holy courts of heaven. You're safe in Jesus Christ. By grace you've been saved. You'll be in heaven. It's secure. But when you get there, your crappy life is going to haunt you forever. You're going to get there and you're going to go, oh, I wish I loved Jesus better than I did. Oh, uh, it, here's how it comes, uh, comes off too. People say, well, I'll never even get near Billy Graham. He'll be so close to Jesus. I'll be so far from him. And, you know, and heaven is portrayed as like a hot, muggy, crowded Walmart, you know, where you just, oh, there's Billy Graham up there. Oh, Jesus, I guess I'll never see Jesus because my life is so terrible. I didn't love him faithfully in this life. Or it may have this kind of a thing. Uh, in fact, I think there's a book titled this. Um, but it's, it's, it's this message preached. The instant you get to heaven, you'll regret how little you love Jesus. So get busy in this life. Well, listen, that'll preach, but I don't think it's biblical. (laughs) 
It sounds good, except for one thing. That. It is finished. Now that's either true or it's not true. It's either true or Jesus is a liar. Redemptive work is finished or it's not. Now, I didn't go into the ministry until I was 34 years old. And that put me at a disadvantage over some, with, in some things. You know, I didn't pop out of school and then go to seminary and pop out. And I don't have 10 extra years under my belt of ministry experience that I can lord over you. Uh, I don't have that. All right. But some of the advantages are, are these. I had some time in adulthood where I observed life and I listened to preachers on the radio and I went to different churches and I heard things. And, uh, you know, the advantage is I question everything. The advantage is I have had some adulthood behind me before I went to the ministry and I'm like, huh, that's always troubled me. You know what? That's always troubled me. That's always troubled me. And so here I am today and I'm looking at you going, you know what? That used, this thing used to trouble me and I bet it troubles you too. This idea that, you know, we're saved, we're justified by Christ's work on the cross, but, uh, you know, now that that's done, a lot's dependent upon our righteousness as to how happy we'll be later. That's always troubled me. I bet it troubles you too. Well, um, we're going to look for the next two Sundays, maybe three, at the idea of an alleged reward system in heaven. And I would say that uh, most of you are probably going, what are you talking about? Of course, there's a reward system in heaven. I'm saying it's an alleged reward system, and it's been a mishandled uh, part of scripture for many, many years um, by many, many preachers. And I want you to know I'm borrowing very heavily from a particular theologian who's written a very excellent article. I'll be glad to give it to you when it's all over. His name's Craig Blomberg. But our staff read this article. It's about, I don't know, 15 pages long or so. Um, Our staff read this article twice. And um, we read it, we studied it, we came together as a group, we discussed it. It was led by Dr. Young, and we came to, two times as a staff, a unanimous, enthusiastic conclusion that this doctrine of a reward system in heaven is false and anti-gospel and anti-Christian. And I want to explain it to you over the next few weeks. So I want you to know, our whole staff enthusiastically led by Dr. Young. And by the way, Jeff Sample was there for the first one and Randy Carsons was there for the second one. I don't know if you know this or not, but Randy Carsons is a wealth of theological understanding. He is a good, steady. If you have a theological question, I wouldn't hesitate to go to Randy Carsons. He knows a lot. So Jeff was at the first one, Randy's at the second one, Dr. Young's superintending it, and uh, the whole staff is in unanimous, hearty agreement that this reward system in heaven is not a doctrine. And I want to show it to you for the next few weeks. So uh, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, and uh, I derive so much pleasure from looking at this story. Uh, this is, of course, a parable of Jesus, and in Matthew chapter 20, verse 1, he gives us a picture, and he says this, Matthew 20, verse 1, the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Okay, so you got this, uh, this uh, business owner, and uh, he's got a vineyard, and he needs some workers to harvest his vineyard. Okay, verse two. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, and a denarius was a fair ways page for a day, 
he sent them out into his vineyard. So he goes into the marketplace, right? He sees some laborers. He says, hey, you want to work in my vineyard all day? I need some harvesters, uh, harvesting done. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, a denarius a day, hit the fields. First thing in the morning, out you go. Yay. Verse three, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And, he too, and to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. So got it, three hours into the workday, these other people have been working for a few hours. He goes to the marketplace, he sees some more people. He's like, hey, harvest time's harvest time, let's speed it up. He goes to the marketplace, hire some more people, hit the vineyard, I'll pay you something fair. It goes on in verse five, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same thing. Verse six, about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, hey, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one's hired us. He said, well, go to the vineyard too. All right, you get it? Some people have been working since crack of dawn. Three hours later, some more folks come. A few hours later, some more and more and more. So there are five different groups. You got the first time of the day people. You got the thir- third hour, uh, sixth, ninth, and 11th. So you got five groups of people going out there to work. End of the day. Verse eight, this is Jesus' parable. This is his story, his illustration. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Verse eight. And when evening came, The owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now you can imagine, the scenario is you got five groups of people, you got the crack of dawn folks, and you got the late in the day folks that only work a couple hours, maybe an hour. And the the late in the day folks get paid first and say, all right, uh, boss man, line them up and pay them. And, uh, okay, you late in the day, people, we're going to pay you first. Here's a denarius. And they got to be going, hot dog, a denarius, a fair day's pay for just a little bit of work. That's pretty good. Now think of the next group. Think of the ninth hour people. They're going, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's pretty good. What are we going to get? You get a denarius too. And they're like, okay, well, mildly disappointing, but still, <laughs> that's a pretty good deal, man, you know? Okay, we'll take it. They get to the next group. You get a denarius too. Hey, wait a second. <laughs> I worked longer than these guys, and now it's starting to smell kind of funny. You get to the next group. Hey, a denarius. The last group, the ones who've been working all day long, they're sunburned. They're sweaty. They're tired. They've been laboring all day long, all day, every day, long. And uh, they're thinking... I'm either going to get a big payout right here, and it's going to be an awesome illustration. The hearers, too. Oh, what's the illustration, Jesus? They get a big payout? Or they're going to be thinking, hey, that's not fair. What do they get? A denarius. That's the illustration. And Jesus is saying, the kingdom of heaven is like that. Now, what is he saying? You know, we, we go, well, that doesn't sound very fair. Well, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? That's the message. That's the point. Grace is not fair. Now, I don't mean that grace is not fair in the sense of justice. God judges fairly, and our sin debt was fairly and rightly and justly and perfectly and fully placed on another. The courts of heaven were not compromised. But when I say that grace is not fair, I mean it's not what you'd expect. Um, It's... uh, what the sinner does receive as opposed to what the sinner should receive. If you want God to be fair, 
then you should be jettisoned from his presence for all eternity. That's fair. Grace ain't fair in that sense. That's Jesus' whole point. And you'll, you'll thank God for all eternity for that. Well, here's the kicker, ladies and gentlemen. Here's the kicker. Look at verse 16. So the last will be first and the first last. Now, here's the problem. In this discussion of a reward system in heaven, some alleged reward system in heaven, where people have a better existence and some people are here, some people are in the slums, some people are in uh, 38139, some people are in a tent village, uh, some people are in a housing shelter, you know, uh, different places in heaven, you know, just a different structure. Uh, It says the last will be first and the first last. People try to stack a doctrine on top of that, a big heavy doctrine on top of that. They use that as a support. But when you take it in context, and by the way, there are other primary passages which we shall discuss. I won't leave you hanging, I promise. But if you take this in context, what is verse 16, ladies and gentlemen, except a summary statement of Jesus' entire point? What is it? The last will be first, the first will be last. It's an upside-down gospel, basically. It's not what you would expect. You would expect if I work at it, work at it, work at it, work at it, God would go, you've impressed me. But that's not the way it is. That's not the way the kingdom of heaven is. The first shall be last and last shall be first. Summary statement. Is that, does that sound, is that clear? Is that fair? Well, the big question then is this. In uh, chapter 20, verse 1, when it says the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house, the kingdom of heaven is like this. What is Jesus talking about? Is Jesus saying heaven is like this? Is Jesus saying, hey, you want to know what heaven's going to be like? It's going to be like this. Or is Jesus saying, this is, what the, this is what salvation looks like. Now, if Jesus is using this as an illustration about the afterlife, this is what heaven is like. It's like a vineyard, and there's a bunch of laborers, and they get paid a different wage. If Jesus is using that as an illustration of heaven, number one, it's pretty weird that you don't have anybody worshiping at any point which is typical of passages that talk about people in God's presence. But also, the laborers are grumbling. (laughs) Kind of blows that point out of the water, doesn't it? I mean, the laborers are going, hey, these only worked one hour. You made them equal to us. Does that sound like heaven in God's presence? Grumbling? How could it? So what I'm saying is that this passage is not about the afterlife and the functions, the experiential part of heaven, the, what it is to be in God's presence for an eternity. It's not that. What it is, is it's saying this is what being saved by grace through faith looks like. It's got nothing to do with positioning of believers in heaven or earning some kind of eternal heavenly blessing. And by the way, Matthew, the writer here, would like to chime into the argument. And uh, of course, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, correct? Even so, he's a person writing. He's a person writing with his own personality, his own voice, his own perspective, and he's writing to an audience. He's, he wants to connect to an audience. And so let's, let's get his commentary on it. He says, he, he records this uh, parable by Jesus that says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And the very next thing Matthew writes is in verse 17. I mean, verse 16 is a summary statement. The last will be first, first shall be last. Verse 17 comes in and it says, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them. Now listen, folks, this may be chronologically 
true. Maybe it was the same day and uh, same conversation, or maybe it was two weeks difference in time. But the point is, Matthew, ultimately the Holy Spirit of God, records it this way because we're supposed to see something about redemptive history and, and the way the gospel works, right? So Matthew records Jesus saying, hey, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And the very next thing Matthew says is, Jesus is walking up to Jerusalem and so on. He says in verse 18, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. That's what Matthew and the Holy Spirit ultimately wants us to see. Jesus tells us a story about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And the very next thing you have Jesus saying, this is what's going to happen to me with remarkable precision. Ah, this is supposed to tell us what, what the gospel of grace looks like, what, what being saved by grace through faith looks like. Now, an application for your life. This is where I'm sneaking and preaching. Grace gives because it simply wants to. Of course, that's the God of grace. The God of grace simply saves because it pleases him. You know, uh, in our staff discussion um, uh, over this article, uh, over the last, I don't know, we, we, we read it a couple years ago and I think five years prior. In our staff discussion, uh, I said this. I said, I think 90% of our congregation, I mean that, I'd almost take a poll right now. Um, I bet 90% of this room thinks that when they die and when they get to heaven in Jesus Christ, that all the gross, humiliating, terrible stuff they did and all their lack of faithfulness to Jesus will be played for all to see. There's like a big, terrible Malco up there and everybody gets in it and they go... Let's see Curtis Poole's deepest, grossest intentions of the heart. Ooh, look at the way he talked to Denise. Blech. He's horrible. I think that's what people think. They stand and they stand in judgment, and then judgment looks like a big Malco with all your sin on it. Uh, first of all, that, there would be a lot of sin in the Malco theater, uh, a lot of R-rated uh, stuff and worse. Can you imagine that in heaven? But secondly, that can't possibly be biblical. And I'm going to show it to you, which brings us to our next, eh, that's hard to see, Revelation 21. Flip to Revelation 21. As I say, we'll be in this for the next at least week, but probably two weeks, maybe more, because <laughs> I don't want to leave you hanging. I want to show you all the passages that may trouble your heart, and I want to prove to you what the gospel looks like in its fullness. So here we are in Revelation chapter 21. And gosh, uh, this is where it gets uh, really descriptive of things. It says, uh, then I saw, this is the apostle John writing, a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Now listen, the former account that I read to you in Matthew was about the nature of the kingdom of heaven, not the empirical aspect of it. It was about, this is what, this is what, this is what it is to be living in the realm of light. This is what it is for a Christian to be saved by grace through faith. But here in Revelation, it is specifically speaking eschatologically. It's specifically speaking of end times. You see verse one there. There's a new heaven and a new earth. Verse four, uh, the former things have passed away. Look at verse four again. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we just read God's word. I got a quiz for you. True or false? This means that there can be nothing in heaven that will make you sad. What do you think? Think it's a true statement? Yeah. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. There shall be no mourning, no crying, no pain anymore because the former things have passed away. They're gone. Nothing in heaven can make you sad. So if anybody preaches to you, the instant you get to heaven, you'll be filled with shame and regret and remorse, you can say, that can't be true. It can't be true. It can't be true. Well, as we close, you might be thinking, what about crowns? (laughs) Well, don't worry. We're going to talk about crowns. We're going to talk about crowns. Fear not. But until then, let me leave you with this. This is a good gospel illustration. And this is a quote from the guy who wrote the article. And I actually, I, I'm amplifying it because I looked up some, some facts, okay? But uh, this is a quote from the guy who ran, read, wrote the article. He says, the differences in elevation between Mount Everest, and here's where I'm adding, it's the highest point on earth, 29,000 feet. Highest point on earth. The difference between uh, the elevation of Mount Everest, the highest point on earth, 29,000 feet, and uh, Marina Trench, no, Mariana Trench, that's the lowest point on earth. That's, that's in the deepest depth of the ocean just off Japan. That's 36,000 feet. So you've got 29,000 feet, highest point on earth, 36,000 feet, lowest point on earth. And if you've ever been on a mountain, you know, I almost passed out at 14,000 feet. I can't imagine 29,000 feet. I mean, I could barely put sentences together when I was in Colorado. Uh, it really did affect me. The highest point, the lowest point. I mean, so dramatic. Wow. He goes on to say, they seem negligible when the earth is viewed from Mars. Is that not a good idea? You look at it from Mars and you go, okay, what, I mean, what, that, this high, I mean, is it high? What, you can't even tell. That's the point, ladies and gentlemen. 
We uh, come to God in this gospel equation and we say, well, okay, uh, I'm examining my life and I did this and I'm super sincere, super duper duper sincere and I've always strived to search for answers and I've always looked for uh, whatever path would take me to uh, God uh, and I did my best and I gave a lot of money and I, by the way, I've got a brick uh, on the, the, the fellowship center at my church with our name on it. When we gave that money, I got my name on that brick. I can always point to that. You know what that looks like from Mars? <laughs> you know what it looks like from beyond the galaxy, beyond the cosmos? What does that look like to a God who is not only above and transcendent of that because of his infinitude, but his perfections? He looks at our righteousness, and we go, look what I did. He's going, are you kidding? Do you not see the chasm that only the cross can fill? Well, friends, uh, from God's perspective, there is no one righteous, no, not one. And that is why grace is, by necessity, amazing and free. And if we take if we take God's word and we twist it into something that takes the gospel message and pulls us into eternity and flips it back to a merit-based system, have we ever blown it? And I will prove that to you over the next few weeks and I encourage you to come back. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you and we love your word and we're in awe of your Uh, paying attention to us in the first place, that you would have loved us with an everlasting love even when we were at enmity with you and uh, refused to come and would never have come had you not had a plan of salvation. We praise you for that. We love you for that. And we pray that you would take whatever is true and press it into our hearts and understanding and and lives. Um, Any folly, Lord, let it fall away. And if I If I mislead the flock, then strike me. Uh, But if it's true, Lord, then uh, cause our spirits to yield. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, you guys.